0: But I have worked out that life is less about doing stuff and it's more about doing stuff at the right time. God has made the world with timing in mind, the right thing at the right time. So buying shares, if you're into that sort of thing, buying when it's low, buying at the right time. Or gardening, planting seeds at the right season, the right thing at the right time is beautiful. Um, on the flip side, though, the wrong thing at the wrong time can be absolutely disastrous. Um, I have a friend who told me the story about his mate and he had his phone turned off because it was his day off, it was his day of rest. And when he turned it back on, he had about 30 missed calls, 30 voicemails. And it turns out that he had forgot to go to a wedding. And, you know, that doesn't sound too bad because people miss weddings except for the fact that he was the minister who was officiating the wedding. He was in the wrong place at the wrong time. I reckon, though, one of the more frustrating feelings, apart from doing the wrong thing at the wrong time, is actually not being sure whether you are doing the wrong thing or not. You know, sometimes you lay awake at night, and while the rest of the world is sleeping, you start to think to yourself, am I actually using my time well? Am I actually wasting my time, or am I using it effectively? And it's a very frustrating feeling well, what I want to do this morning is I want to listen to the God who created time in the first place. And Isaiah 61 and 62 is a place which helps us to see what time we are in. And my prayer is that as we listen, we would know what it means to experience the great joy of doing the right thing at the right time. So that's my prayer. Let me pray and we'll have a look at Isaiah 61. Our Father God, we give you thanks for gathering us here around your word. And Father, with all the distractions and the weeks that we've been through, we pray that now we would uh, be able to listen carefully. We pray that you'd speak loudly and tell us what time we are living in, and so we may live well. For Jesus' sake, we pray. Amen. Um, If you haven't been with us for the Isaiah series, we are looking at the second half of Isaiah. And if I had to summarise the context, I would say that Isaiah is writing about a time of unfulfilled expectations. You know how sometimes on your birthday, you receive a present which actually isn't very good, and you say thanks for the present, but you're thinking... You know, you should have probably saved your money on that one. Um, Isaiah is writing about a time when God's people will have returned from exile, but actually life isn't as glorious as they thought it would be. Um, So they're feeling unfulfilled, insecure, and the issue has been not so much their situation, but actually their hearts, which have turned away from God. And it's into this context that a new time is announced, and this is a time of great rejoicing and hope. So come with me to Isaiah chapter 61 and verse 1. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn. Um, God's anointed, who surely is the spirit-filled servant who we met in chapter 42, here announces a time when he will bring true freedom. And notice here that it's not freedom for the wealthy, or the comfortable, or those who have it together. It's freedom for the poor. It's freedom for the broken-hearted, and it's freedom for the captives. It's those who are so broken by life that they just cannot see any way forward. And I've been reading the biography of a lady who was a political prisoner in North Korea. And in prison, she saw her mum pass away and she saw her eight-year-old son pass away. And she describes that feeling of absolute despair and absolutely no hope of going forward. And it's that kind of despair that God's anointed will turn into gladness. But here's the interesting thing, though. By this time in Isaiah, in his prophecy, I actually think the language of poor and brokenhearted and captive is actually less to do with Israel's physical situation and more about their spiritual condition. I think Israel is mourning not so much about their physical circumstances, but about the fact that they've rejected the God who gave them life. And they haven't been able to do anything about it. And the Bible says that that's the condition, not just for Israel, but for you and I. We have deeply offended God, and there's nothing that we can do to change our hearts. I mean, it's like a hereditary disease that gets passed on through humanity. Um, a, few ye- a few years ago, I, I visited the doctor... And they told me that I have slightly high cholesterol. And I eventually worked out that it was less about the McDonald's that I was eating and more about the fact that my family history had high cholesterol. And the Bible says that like Israel, you and I have this same condition. We've offended God and we can't do anything about it. But what Isaiah 61 is promising is that for those who have recognized and mourned and grieved over their sin, there will be great joy and gladness. But secondly, do you notice that it won't just be a time of freedom, it will be a time of radical transformation as well. Come with me to verse 4. They shall build up the ancient ruins, they shall raise up the former devastations, they shall repair the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. Strangers shall stand and tend your flocks, foreigners shall be your plowmen and vine dressers, but you shall be called the priests of the Lord. They shall speak of you as the ministers of our God, you shall eat the wealth of the nation's and in their glory you shall boast. Um, here, friends, is a picture of radical transformation. They will rebuild and enjoy the things that they've lost. There'll be a new office works. There'll be a new KFC for Huey. Um, they will enjoy all the good things that they didn't have before. This is radical transformation. Um, There is, however, um, one particular word which I think captures this radical transformation more than any other. And what I'm going to get you to do is, I'm going to get your help, and what I want you to do is to scan down chapter 61 and 62 and see if you can find there's a particular word that gets repeated and I think is the basis for this radical transformation See if you can find it, and if you found it, maybe just shout it out for the rest of us. Any takers? Any takers? Yes, thank you, Ian. Is the oh, thank you, Sherman, who is Ian's. Ian spoke for Sherman. Thanks, Ian. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Always taking another people's credit. Anyway. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Here's the word righteousness. So 61 verse 3, they shall be oaks of righteousness. Verse 10, my soul shall exult in my God, for he has covered me with the robe of righteousness. Verse 11, the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to sprout out before all the nations. 62, 1, until her righteousness goes forth as brightness. 62, 2, the nations shall see your Righteousness. And what will be the basis of this radical transformation? It'll actually be that men and women will be made righteous. In my first year of Moore College, I asked a lecturer, I stuck up my hand, I don't ask many questions at college, but I asked the lecturer, What do you think God's righteousness is? And in all his wisdom, he said, it's God's rightness. And I came away from that lecture thinking, I can't believe I came to Moore College to get that answer. Yeah, yeah. But the more I thought about it, the more it makes sense. God's righteousness is this ginormous term which covers the fact that God is right in everything he does. He's right in his justice, he's right in his character, and he's right in his standards. And if God is up here in his rightness, and we are stuck down here in our sin, then to not be punished as we ought, but to dwell with God, then we need to actually be made right with God. And when I got married, I was, I was given this traditional Chinese outfit to wear for the wedding. And I really didn't want to wear it. Um, but what it represented for the family was that I'd be welcomed and accepted. And the most profound promise of transformation in these chapters is surely that God would robe, that he would clothe sinful humanity with righteousness so they can dwell in his presence and be part of his family. And so do you see that these chapters they are filled with hope for the future. A future where God's anointed will set free those who are imprisoned by sin where they'll be radically transformed to live new lives and that they will be given God's righteousness to dwell and rejoice in the Lord. Um, But here's the question, though. Um, When is this time? Um, What time are we in now? Isaiah was writing thousands of years ago about a future time, and the question for us is in 2017, where are we now? How do we live well In the time we are in. Now, you might think this is fairly straightforward, but we're going to have a look at. I think Luke chapter 4 gives us a bit of a surprise. So, what I want you to do is um, you'll need to keep a finger in chapter 61 of Isaiah, and then what I want you to do is flick over to Luke chapter 4. So don't lose Isaiah 61. And if you go over to Luke chapter 4 and verse 17, what happens is that Jesus himself picks up the scroll of Isaiah and he reads out and quotes this very chapter, Isaiah 61. But what I'm going to get you to do um, as your final interactive exercise is to... Just read what Jesus quotes just by yourself and have a think about where Jesus stops the quotation. Where does Jesus stop the quotation? All right, hopefully that's enough time. But do you notice that he stops the quotation at to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour? And you've actually kept your finger in Isaiah 61 and flicked back for a moment. What is the very next thing that happens after the year of the Lord's favour? It is the day of vengeance of our God. That is, Jesus, when he came, actually announced where we are now. It's, um, It's actually that God hit the pause button on the day of vengeance and instituted the time of the Lord's favour now. In other words, um, the time we are in now is the time where God's people and humanity can come to know the favour of God and receive his righteousness before the day of vengeance, before the day of the Lord's judgement. Friends, that is... Uh, we are living in a window of opportunity for you and I to come and find the joy of salvation and righteousness in Christ. And we are living in a window of opportunity before the day of vengeance to come and find freedom from our sin. Um, it reminds me a little bit about the website osbargain.com.au. Put up your hand if you know what Osbargain is. Um, for, yeah, <laughs> two hands Yeah, yeah. Um, for those of you who don't know what Ausbargain is, it's basically a community website that collects all the different sales from around the place and, and lets the community know so for example if I find that McDonald's is selling hash browns for 10 cents for 5 days only I go on to Ausbargain and I tell everyone it's a window of opportunity to let people know. And it's the same thing here. Jesus is saying that he's announced a limited time only for men and women like you and me to come and to find salvation and avoid the judgment of God. And that's what our reading 2 Peter 3 reminds us of. And we are in a time when God is allowing sinners to come to him and avoid his judgment, to be free from captivity and to find righteousness. Isaiah 61 and 62, can you see as actually helping us to see what time we are living in now? It looked forward to a time both of the Lord's favor but also of the Lord's judgment. And in light of Jesus' death and resurrection, we now live in the time of the Lord's favour. And so, friends, our time is limited as the news of Jesus calls people back to God. If that's the case, if it's true that we are in a window of opportunity to come to the Lord Jesus Christ, um, what does that mean for the way that we use our time? To do the right thing at the right time. Well, I have two just brief reflections for us to think about. The first one here, you've actually noticed, what is the thing that Isaiah 61 encourages us to do? Well, it's not so much about doing stuff first and foremostly. The language that Isaiah 61 uses is the language of rejoice. So when you get a good news announcement, you don't go and do stuff. You actually celebrate and you rejoice. And so what I want to ask you firstly this morning is that have you personally grieved and mourned over your sin? Have you actually recognised that you've deeply offended God and need his help? Um, If you haven't already, friends, can I encourage you to do that today and come and find the joy that is with the Lord Jesus Christ who comes and robes you in his righteousness so that you can be friends with the Lord Jesus and God himself. Um, If you're already a Christian or a follower of Jesus, um, I still want to ask that question, how is your joy being made manifest to the world that you live in. Um, One commentator said that, what is the one characteristic that people should see when they look at the church? And he says, it's joy. It's rejoicing. It's that deep joy of knowing that we are right with God. So when people see your life, here's the question, is it marked with joy Or is it marked with anxiety or fear or uncertainty? As a slight qualification to that, I do want to say I don't think rejoicing means being happy all the time. Um, I know that God has made us different in terms of the emotional expression spectrum. Some people you think, do you even have emotion? And... Other people, it's like you ask them how their week is and they just burst into tears. I know that the emotional spectrum is very different for each of one of us. And so sometimes rejoicing in your salvation looks like being overflowing with excitement and happiness and gladness. But at other times rejoicing looks like In the quietness of your heart, when you can't feel like smiling at all, still being assured and secure that God has still robed you in righteousness and that he still loves you even though you don't feel like smiling today. And so to live well now is firstly to live a life of rejoicing in God's righteousness. Secondly, however, living well now, the fact of the reality is that we need to use our time well as well. If we are living in the window of opportunity for people to come and find God's righteousness, then how we use our time matters. Now, the question is, how do you proclaim the year of the Lord's favour amidst the busyness of day-to-day life, okay? Because I get that everyone feels busy and it just feels like if I come to church and the preacher says, you know, just do more evangelism, you go away and you feel guilt, okay? Um, I don't have all the answers to this, but I've been encouraged by a book Um, and uh, if Peter hasn't fallen asleep at the back, if you just want to just, on the screen... There's this book by a minister in England, his name's Matt Fuller, and he wrote a book called Time for Everything. It's a question. Time for Everything. And his whole book is aimed to address this question. I have kids or I have a job that's, you know, working me hard or I just feel exhausted every time I come home in the evening. doesn't feel like I have any more time. But how do I manage... Um, my schedule and yet be serious about the year of the Lord's favor and I didn't put a, a picture on the screen but he has this model of a house and the house has a ceiling and a floor and the ceiling is he calls it the line of idolatry and so in our time we don't want to go beyond the ceiling into idolatry. So at work, for example, you don't want to make work an idol by putting it above your other things. The floor is the floor of neglect. And so just as you don't want to go beyond idolatry, you don't want to go into idolatry, you also don't want to go below the floor into neglect. And so that might look like um, working so hard that you neglect your family responsibilities or your church responsibilities. Um, in between those two things, the ceiling and the floor, he says that actually as Christians we have a whole bunch of freedom. And the reality is that you and I, we are free to make a whole lot of choices. So in the area of leisure, for example, if, um, if uh, one family goes off to an overseas trip or another family goes to uh, watch a football match, Um, they're actually free to make those choices. And so what the scriptures don't present is a guilt trip into doing more evangelism. But he has a lot of helpful things to say, but I think the most helpful thing that I've read was that at the end of the day, regardless of all the freedom that we have as Christians, the reality is that your time is not actually your time. It's actually time that's been given to you by God himself to actually take the year of the Lord's favour seriously. And so can I encourage you that even as you enjoy the freedom of choices that you have in each sphere of your life, know that your time is actually not yours, but it belongs to God And in his timeline, there is a day when he will return to judge everybody. And the question is, how will you use your time in light of the day of judgment? Um, I've got one friend, he's just one example of many people, but he works in a corporate firm, KPMG. So if he can do it at KPMG, it's possible for the rest of us. Um, but he's in the last couple of weeks, he's, began, he's begun a, an investing Christianity group at his workplace. And if you're familiar with KPMG, it's not as though the partners go, oh, that's great, yeah, you can do that. Why don't you just take time out of your schedule to do an investigating Christianity explored thing? They're not going to do that. He's had to go, I'm going to make my time about serving the Lord Jesus, actually helping people come to know him. So, friends, how are you using your time? Um, Can we continue encouraging each other to use our time well and to not see it as time that belongs to me but belongs to the Lord? Let's pray together. Our Father God, we give you thanks for your word that was written over a long period of time and yet is authored by you and is relevant to us. And Father, we thank you that in the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, we are living in the time of opportunity. And Father, we know that we are also busy. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to have that timeline of the day of judgment coming. So, Father, in our freedom of choices, in the individual lives that you've given to us, we pray that we would be of the same mind to call others to repent and come to Christ. And we pray this so that our friends and family can find eternal life and for you to get the glory which you deserve. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.